welcome to Sitting with Cece, the place to be for all discussions and conversations about isms and controversy, a podcast where you name it and we talk about it. Here on our podcast, we will create a safe space so we can have open and honest conversations and dialogue. We aim to educate you to increase your understanding and awareness. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Celia McIntosh, nurse practitioner, educator, and advocate. Thanks for joining me for the fourth episode of Sitting with CC. This podcast will feature conversations about all things ism and controversy. We aim to create a space where people can talk openly and honestly about issues so we can get to the heart of the matter. Today, I'm sitting down with Zahaya Rowe. Zahaya is a songwriter, lyricist, producer, and creative visionary who has dedicated her life to existing in spaces that elevate and change the limited narratives, images, and awareness of what it means to exist as a Black American woman. With her eclectic background of jazz, hip-hop, R&B, lo-fi, hip-hop, music, theater, funk, and soul, Zahaya finds ways to push traditional boundaries in the world of music and alternative R&B. The COVID crisis of 2020 has catapulted Zahaya on a new journey through sound and spirit as she captures and transports us into a higher spiritual vibration. We are extremely glad to have you as our guest, Zahaya. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for being here. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the organizations we are affiliated with. Thank you, Zahaya. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation to pull up a chair with me and join the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you share your knowledge and expertise. You do so much in the musical community, and I want you to talk to us about that and unpack some of those things. We definitely also, today we're going to discuss trauma, creativity, mental health, and the pandemic. So we know that you just released a song not too long ago, and it has, I looked at it today and has over, I believe, 49,000 views for your video on YouTube. And that's amazing and powerful. So some of the questions that I want to start off today really is what was your impetus behind the song Foul Soul Child? So, yeah, Foul Soul Child. It really is kind of my testament, I guess I'd say. (laughs) When I wrote the lyrics, I actually wrote it to deal with just toxic energy in general. I was going through some hard times and a friend of mine was going through hard times. And initially the the lyrics were written with my friend in mind, but once COVID hit, it took on a whole new meaning for me. And really I, I it's it started to resonate more with what I felt I was going through just during the pandemic. And just a lot of musicians just with losing job, losing income and, really having to rethink how I was going to move forward within my career and also being a mother. So there was a lot with that, you know, newfound responsibilities that I know many other parents had and having to make some really tough choices. So Foul Soul Child was really this way of releasing and this way of kind of giving myself a therapeutic outlet through my art to go ahead and and continue to write a a full song with this topic in mind and thinking about other women who were also going through things during this pandemic. That's amazing. So you do feel like a lot of your other peers or musicians, like you said, have mentioned, are they going through a lot of similar challenges? You know, kind of how do you think COVID has played a role in, you know, creativity or lack of creativity? 
Yeah, definitely. A, a lot of musicians that I talked to were, were definitely going through depressing times. It's. I think there's a misconception that you could even exist as a musician as a full-time job and not be famous, which that's, you know, not accurate. You actually can earn a pretty decent living. It takes a lot of hustle, but most musicians that I know enjoy that hustle and enjoy that, that vibrant lifestyle. And when COVID hit, it really just forced everybody to a standstill, but not in a, not in a positive way. And I know a lot of musicians face depression. And then in addition to that, just trying to figure out how we're going to to reinvent ourselves. But a lot of people did turn to creativity as a form of therapy. So it really did. Um, I know so many people who have been working on new music, just even here, just here in Rochester alone, they have projects coming, coming down the pipes of just things that since their minds were allowed to be quieted, they were really able to move into a creative space in a way that they hadn't before. Yeah. And I I would also echo that because as a nurse, there were a lot of nurses furloughed um, from many hospitals. And, you know, that's kind of spurred a lot of creativity in the sense that, you know, passion projects that they had in mind before, they were now able to have that opportunity to kind of step out out of their comfort zone and become entrepreneurs. So we know that, you know, during this time, there's been a lot of businesses, a lot of solopreneurs around this time as well. So I would, I would echo that. That's a lot of what you're telling me is also true for nurses in the healthcare field. I see. Yeah. Hey, I have a friend who learned how to crochet. (laughs) Okay. That's a crochet dolls. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been watching a couple of TikTok videos and there's a lady on there that actually does crochet dresses, which I think is just fabulous. Yeah, those are awesome. Now, one of the things that you mentioned, you said being a mother, and I know that there's been a lot of talk around this time with COVID about schools being closed. Many women in the, in the even in the healthcare field or the corporate world have to leave their jobs. So what are some of the challenges, you know, that you've had with the school system? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that, that got really intense. I have, because I have twins who are seven. And at the time of, well, when, when everything first shut down, the twins were, my twins were six. And then I have a teenager. And then I also have a, my oldest daughter who's in college. Mm-hmm. And just the shift of lifestyle, the abrupt pulling the rug just being pulled from underneath us with everything, mm-hmm. it was insane. And I don't, I know that some suburban schools, the other thing is is I actually choose to stay in the city school district um, for multiple reasons of socioeconomic disparity that I know that's a whole nother topic, but dealing with the city school district and just the over-administration, I guess I'd say, just being able to have access to resources so that we can, so my kids can actually start remote learning, it took like about a month and a half before we even got resources we needed. I was dealing with trying to keep my children in line. I, one of my children actually was suffering from depression herself. And so it was, and I know a lot of other parents who were dealing with the same thing. I think I read a report not too long ago that was saying that teenagers actually suffered the most through this whole pandemic and just so as a parent, you know, you're trying to not only deal with the the rug being pulled from underneath you with your own personal affairs, but then trying to keep your kids together. It was intense. 
and just being able to to adjust. I honestly have to say that even to this point, well, actually now to this point, I can say we're finally adjusted, but it was not a quick adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I think that my because my children thrived so so much in the setting of school, for them to have to relearn how they learn while they're learning, right? right. Uh, it really adjust a, a heroic fleet, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> and I I also echo what you're saying here because. We haven't really heard a lot about youth, specifically teenagers, and, you know, what's been happening in them and how they're dealing with and coping with just, you know, not being in those social circles. And actually, Senator uh, Summer Brook, she actually had a town hall that talked about youth mental health, and it brought out a lot of discussion about anxiety and depression and just that feeling of isolation and loneliness. So it is very important to, you know, have those conversations with those kids. And I don't think many people were, you know, really, or many parents were even educated about the need to do that. So I think that brought out a whole lot of stuff. And then there's the other piece about the stigma as a whole on mental illness, especially in the black and brown community. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had any challenges with that? Are you noticing that as well? I do. I actually feel like the stigma has been something that, yeah, it's been so deep that even my mother, who I feel has always been very open-minded, had no idea of um, the effect of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're always just told so often, and I always felt too, just as a black woman that, you know, you're supposed to be strong and you're supposed to be this rock for the, for your entire family. And I've always acted in that way. I also had no idea that by me being so ridiculously independent was also a result of just the, what I experienced mental health wise throughout my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so really um, I had to learn about my own mental health, even though I've been experiencing it for years, Mm -hmm. um, really since I was 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the lack of it being part of discussions, the narrative is always more so, you know, oh, girl, you know, you you got this, Do you know, you're fine, pushing on and, you know, press, press on kind of mentality. It really was so deep in my, just culturally for me, so deep, I wasn't even aware of how much I, I did need to really take a break. Yeah. And I, what I'm realizing, too, is that, you know, uh, that trope of, you know, being the strong Black woman and having to be the pillar for the community and managing so many things can also do be so damaging to you as an individual, as a Black woman, because you're trying to manage all these things and you're trying to be strong for everybody else. And oftentimes, our self-care is left out of the picture. And therefore, you know, we suffer a lot of that, you know, not really PTSD, but just, you know, the the depression, the feeling overwhelmed, the anxiety, just, you, you feel like you're kind of held up to this higher standard. Like you can't, you know, people don't believe that you're able to be weak, you know, strong people get weak. And so oftentimes no one checks on you, you know, they don't check in with you and see how you're doing because they feel like you're going to be the bridge, but you're like, 
love yous do break, you know, yeah, it can yeah. only be so strong for so long. And, you know, we do need, you know, and we, we are very resilient as black women, but we also need someone to check on us. So if you don't, yeah. mind, could you tell us a little bit more about your personal mental health journey? Honestly, I, um, I've been keeping a journal since I was like probably nine or 10 years old, uh, fifth grade, I think is when I started. And I always struggle with depression. I remember there were times when, when I actually really wanted to end my life. And, and that, and that didn't just happen when I was a kid. Like I even remember even after having my, my own children, having those days where I just, I remember saying to my husband, I'd be like, you know, I really wish I could just leave the earth right now. Like just feel it coming to, to that kind of low, but the low was never, was never really addressed. Like anything that I had to do in order to get through it, I, I would have to pull, pull it from myself. And I really believe that, you know, my strong faith in God is the only thing that would keep me from actually acting on something like that throughout my life. Because I was always taught, you know, that God's, you know, gives you the gift of life. And by you, if you were to take your own life, that that is a a slap in the face to God or however you want to phrase it. But so, you know, I would never actually go down that path, but I definitely thought those thoughts. And I remember telling my mother things like that. And, and what struck me recently, like I, this is as soon as, uh, just recently during COVID times, I remember mentioning things to her because I had literally in the past year, I had uh, three nervous breakdowns or three emotional breakdowns, I guess I'd say. And, and after one of them, I just told my mom, I was like, you know, this is something that come up for me a lot. And I feel like it's all just hit with COVID. It all just slapped me in the face. And I was telling my mother how I remember feeling like this when I was younger. And she said, she said to me, huh, it's funny. You know, I never thought that you were in that bad of a situation. I never thought it was that bad. And it's just, you know, just one of those things that goes to show that how little these things were spoken about and how, mm-hmm. how uh, are the lack of information that we had. And, and I, th- I do think it's great that recently we have so many more resources, so much mm-hmm. more information about the importance of mental health and all these things that these micro traumas that actually build mm-hmm. and are and create a toxic toxic environment just for our well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it all kind of hit me. And I've been, and honestly, like I've been in and out of therapy my entire adult life. And one thing that struck me too, is that I has never offered medication for this. Mm-hmm. So I, and I didn't even think I needed medication because I was in therapy and the therapist never suggested it. I would go to the doctor's office and I would, you know, when they ask you those questions about experiencing this, have you felt, you know, this suicidal or anything like that? They actually ask you those questions at the visits and I would answer them honestly and still nothing was ever, it was never addressed. So I really was in this place where I was feeling like, you know, okay, Zahai, you got to get your act together. You got to just, you, you got to pull yourself together and get your act together again, because that's the cultural, you know, mentality that we're, we're fed as black women. And then it literally took me just this February of 2021, having a, a emotional breakdown at the doctor's office to the point where I was, I could not stop crying. And I'm in this a middle of an emotional breakdown that the doctor finally, the doctor looked at me and they're like, hmm, I think you're clinically depressed. <laughs> and, then, and then I get medication. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like 20, literally 25 years of going through this system and going through this process of therapy, doctors, therapy, doctor, but never having any real solution. And until, until now. Yeah. And you, you bring up a great point because this, this is one of the biggest things that black women continue to complain about. They often say, you know, we're telling our symptoms. We're telling how we feel. We're letting providers know you, you, you're telling me you, you went through the right steps. You kept a journal. You knew you were having these episodes. Mm-hmm. You were in treatment. You were in the healthcare system. But for 25 years of you being in the system, they still failed you. You know, you, yeah. you checked the boxes. You answered the question. They assessed you at every visit, but you never got any relief. Any No one really did, took your complaint seriously, is right. what it sounds like. And that's oftentimes what we're hearing, that either there's a lot of delays in cares, which it sounds like it was in your case. Oftentimes when Black women are reporting their symptoms, they feel unheard, dismissed. And this con- this continues the cycle. So yeah, so I'm sorry you had to go through that. But I will tell you that I'm consistently hearing a lot of these, you know, these same themes that you're just telling me about. Even when we talk about Black maternal health, it was Black maternal health week last week and the same thing continues to happen with um, pregnant moms black moms yeah um, sorry you had to go through that but you talked a lot of you, you mentioned that you were in therapy what mm-hmm. has that journey been like in terms of finding a therapist has it been you know oftentimes you know black and brown individuals don't want to go to therapy you know they oftentimes there's not a lot of therapists that look like them you know we're trying to work mm-hmm. on increasing diversity in the workforce when when we speak around mental health. Oftentimes it's felt that, you know, non-melanated providers aren't able to, you know, really relate to some of the situations that are creating some of this, these feelings of depression and anxiety. What was your journey like with that? Yeah, it, it really was exactly that. I, I, you know, I, I should have counted. I was thinking about trying to count how many therapists I've been through. <laughs> Over the past 25 years, because there were quite a few, I I probably have, I've probably seen about, I'd say six, maybe six different therapists throughout my time, just trying to find the right one. And I actually in college did have, I did find one woman who was great. Mm -hmm. And I will say out of all these therapists, I've never had a therapist of color. I did reach out. I, I actually re- did reach out to one, but that therapist has actually was caring for my daughter. So I couldn't use her. Mm-hmm. And then to find somebody else was nearly impossible. This is back in 2012. I think it was the last time I had searched. But the crazy thing for me is that, you know, it's difficult one to even reach out to get therapy when you're depressed, when you mm-hmm. get to that point where you know, you, you're unable to really care for yourself because your mental space is, is that dark Mm -hmm. that you can't even get up to even call that therapist to ask to, to get help or, or whatever it may be at that moment. It's hard. So then to even to, to, if you make it to the point where you call that therapist and you get that appointment and after filling out the paperwork, and then you, you go in and you, you talk, start talking to them and then you realize that they have no idea what you're talking about as far as your experience. And this happened to me. And it's crazy. I picked the therapist because she had a cool name. 
I won't say her name, but she had a cool name. Mm-hmm. Pick this therapist. I'm like, all right, I really got to get in and do something about this. I want to, you know, end things. So let me get in and talk, start talking to somebody. I pick this therapist and I start talking to them about colorism and mm-hmm. just my experiences because I'm a dark skinned black woman and just the experiences that I've gone through. And, and granted, like, I am so grateful that these past, I feel like the past three years, maybe. Mm-hmm. In Hollywood, we have so much more representation, still mm-hmm. not enough in my opinion, but just so much more representation. But growing up in the 90s, it was non-existent. It was like, for a moment, we had Angela Bassett. They gave us one. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was like, here's your one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get her and then you get Whoopi. And then I was like, mm-hmm. that was it. So I'm trying to talk to this therapist about you know the issues I have with colorism and not, you know, and, and these, these feelings of, of just ignored, you know, mm-hmm. the, the invisibility of being a black woman. And she had no idea what I was talking about. She's like, I've never heard of colorism. And I'm like, how can somebody, yeah, like, you know, how can somebody even help you? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you go back to the drawing board again and, and it's very difficult process, but I do believe still in the process because even with the therapists who may not have been able to relate to me from what I was experiencing as a black woman, there were some therapists who were able to, who were so good that they were able to push past that mm-hmm. and get to still get to the root of some and unpack some of the things that I needed to mm-hmm. unpack, you know? And so, so I do think it is, it's a double thing. It's like, yeah, we, we need definitely need more black and brown therapists so mm-hmm. that we don't have to, so, so that we have a, a better chance of being understood. Yeah. And not have to go through this uh, drawn out process. And I don't know, I, I, I kind of feel like it's a blessing that I have the therapist who I have now because I literally uh, was emotionally vomiting to this woman, all types of stuff during the 2020 and all mm-hmm. the killings that we were experiencing at an amplified level. Mm-hmm. And she was right there with me just <laughs> so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a process. So I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I hope anyone who's listening to this and, and is, discouraged by therapy, I hope that they would reconsider their experience maybe with one particular therapist and still keep pushing through because when you find the right one, it works. Mm -hmm. And for many, it can be very life-changing. So um, thank you for that. That's what that, that's kind of like segues into one of the other questions that I was going to ask. What, what would you say to someone in the audience that may feel like they're in a dark place right now? I think it's important to remember that the dark place that you you are at is not you completely. I feel like you have to somehow, and I know it's difficult when you're in the dark space, that dark place, but you have to somehow, I I look at it now having experience with with that feeling and knowing what it is when I'm in there and when I'm not, because at 45, that's just what happens. You know, you learn things about yourself, but (laughs) being able to separate that and give it a name I think is the biggest thing that helped me. Mm-hmm. And so I call it the dark cloud all the time. Okay, okay. I got a dark cloud here right now. Mm-hmm. And I can't shake this feeling of the dark cloud. I've tried meditating. I've tried praying. I've tried all my normal avenues and it's not working. And then I think the hardest part is reaching out to the, if you can reach out to a friend mm-hmm. in that time, just if there's someone that you can call mm-hmm. to help you. And hopefully you do have somebody who you can call. Mm-hmm. 
I also do. I, I would also say too that, especially now, you might be surprised who that person is. Mm. You know, yeah, like it, it, you you could have you know people that you normally are like, oh, let me call my sister or let me call my, but but maybe those even though they know you well, maybe those aren't the people. Maybe it could just it be somebody who you never even would expect. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do to really, you know, because at that point you, you kind of have to um, expose your vulnerability. Yeah. Which, yeah. And I know that's something that just in our culture, black and white American, I don't know, people just don't seem to want to expose their vulnerability because we have to so often protect ourselves from the potential backlash or hate or mm-hmm. trolling or, you know, whatever that uh, thing may be. Yeah. In a sense, it kind of feels like if you, if you talk to people about your vulnerability, then you've kind of given them an ammunition to judge you in a sense. And that's not necessarily what you need in that moment. You need someone to really just be one with you and to be able to, you know, just listen to you, offer you a perspective. I think that that's what people are afraid of. If I tell you this thing about me, are you going to, like you said, is it going to be a backlash? Is it going to be used against me? Is it going to, you know, are you going to keep using it against me? Am I have? To, am I going to worry that this is going to be out there somewhere kind of floating around and I'm all, and that's just going to victimize me even more. Yeah. And not make me want to open up. So yeah. Yeah, definitely great points. So just wanted to, you know, in talking about all these emotions, how does it feel your work? Can you discuss the role of opening yourself up to how you're feeling to find your best work? Yeah, I will say that that, that is what um, I feel is the blessing when I open myself up for my work. I, I, I realized early on, and, and part of this is just, you know, just from my being, I'm, I am a very emotional person. I'm very much an empath very much can talk to people and really deeply feel things that they feel. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn how to, I did have to learn how to separate that. And I did have to learn how to be healthy in my interactions with, with that type of energy. And I found that art is, is the only way that I can, I can continue to exist and maintain my, my mental health. And that vulnerability is what drives everything. So I put a lot of emphasis on lyrics and the, the feeling, hoping to like help somebody else who might be experiencing that same thing or might be in that same kind of space. Mm-hmm. I think, and luckily we're, you know, there is a more of conversations of moving towards honesty. And I think mm-hmm. like, you know, again, I'm a child of the nineties. So like the puffy era where everything was like glitter and, you know, a facade, the smoke and mirrors. <laughs> that was like the thing back then. And now I do feel that people are ready for that honesty and ready for that, those frank and vulnerable conversations that just really kind of bring us more back more to what it means to exist as a human first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, that's all I want to do with mm-hmm. art and with my music is to, is just put that vulnerability out there put anything that I've experienced or heard from the vulnerability of others and tell Mm -hmm. that story. Now you've kind of touched on this, but I I just wanted to open it up a little bit broader. So many people Mm -hmm. think that depression, anxiety, or leaning into their mental health struggles make their art better. Have you heard that from your other artist friends? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, on that topic though, I've 
I actually am a I'm a big fan of David Bowie. And mm-hmm. that's something that a lot of people are like, like, what David Bowie? But <laughs> one thing David Bowie said, and this is something that I that I also had to learn. I thought that the only way that I could create uh, the the only reason why I was creating great art was because I was experiencing sadness and trauma and all these things. But I learned David Bowie once said that he felt that at one point. But then he also learned that he didn't necessarily have to experience it mm-hmm. in order to create art about it. Mm-hmm. That he was in a, and again, maybe he was, maybe he was an empath. I'm not sure, but that's one thing that I think artists should also be aware of: is that you don't, you don't necessarily have to be in like a physically abusive relationship in order to understand what it means to be vulnerable in that type of situation, and and then create art from that. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, yeah, I, I do see a lot of artists who, when they're hungry, as, as I think that's the phrase we use in the industry, would be like, you know, oh, they're they're hungry, so it sound everything sounds really good, and then when you're not hungry anymore, then all of a sudden the passion's gone. And mm-hmm. but as good a, a true artist will be able to find that even when they're not quote unquote hungry, right? So it's like that passion that drives you. Yeah. Thank you for that. How do we progress forward? One of the things that I did want to, you know, because today we're we're having this conversation on a day where everyone's glued to the TV, watching the verdict for George Floyd and the Derek Chauvin's case. And I'm I'm just wondering from an artist's perspective, how do we progress um, towards eliminating all forms of prejudice, prejudice or racism? Can you speak to that? Yeah, I really feel like it's a two-step process. I, I got to say, uh, I was feeling nervous before that. <laughs> so you bring up the, the trial because the, before they read that verdict, I was nervous. And I'm so glad it, it, it went the way it did. But I do feel very strongly that there's a two-step process that needs to be in place in order for us to really see a change in, in, in our, our experience our, our shared human experience as Black Americans overall. I feel like the one, of course, we definitely need the system to be dismantled. The current system needs to be dismantled and rethought into a, a way that is actually of service to all of the citizens that exist in this country. That's definitely the first thing through the process of policies. But the second thing that I really feel needs to happen is that as much as it's great to have these policies in place, we need pe- we need humans to understand the importance of why these things need to exist. We need the we need people to understand humans as fellow humans and not this them versus us, these divisions that have been really placed before us with all with this not just with the um, experiences that are real, but then also the glorifications of these experiences that we're finding where this, you know, I know that's a whole nother topic <laughs> and I might be going down a, <laughs> okay. a big thing with that, with, you know, what, what the media chooses to show us mm-hmm. and what they don't show us. You know, they're, it's not making the news about all the science, black Americans, scientists that were involved with Mars, the, the landing of the most uh, on Mars and and all of that, but I digress. <laughs> like, yeah, 
you know, but, but we need to, we need to be able to understand that I I hate using the term, you know, love everybody kind of, because this, it it does kind of imply this kumbaya ish thing that Mm -hmm. is not really my intention when I say it, but, but we do need to make sure that there's elements of empathy, education and respect when -hmm. it comes to dealing with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's something that it's real easy to separate, especially the empathy. It's so easy to separate ourselves from other people when we're not in that person's situation and to yeah. see, you know, and to judge and to say, you know, all these things like, oh, so what? He's 13. He had a gun, you know, mm-hmm. gun. He, he, of course, the cop had to shoot him, you know, like, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Like you know, just become more apathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and yeah. some of it too, I definitely think the frequency at which it's happening also is creating this normalization. So people don't yes. really see it as, you know, an issue anymore. It's like being a nurse in the, you know, hospital and those call buttons are going off after a while, they kind of, kind of normalize them to the point where some people can't even hear them. Yeah. So it's like, they don't even look at it like, you know, it, it, in their mind, it's just like, oh, well, it, it's just happened, you know, yeah. so they've been able to separate themselves away from it because it's been so normalized. So yeah. we have to definitely keep our foot on the gas when we talk about um, wanting to change these systems. Um, so I definitely echo what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, and it makes sense, too, that these things would would kind of being, you know, normalized as far as the the violence or the, you know, the, like you said, somebody pushing that call button because it becomes this, this thing of survival. It's like, now we're just trying to survive. If we took everything in like the, in every single experience where somebody is in pain, then we wouldn't be able to survive. Everybody would be a hot mess. Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to figure out how, well, how do we even, when it comes to the safety of humans and the and and counteracting this narrative of of somebody with unpaid park it, parking tickets is now a fugitive like mm-hmm. like when we're talking about you know changing that narrative and seeing that individual as a human that that's where we need to to focus the attention and i honestly am not sure how it all looks but i i feel like the, what you're doing like with creating these spaces for these conversations to be had is so important. And then I also, and I'm trying to do it through music just by mm-hmm. putting those music, meaningful lyrics. And, and that's why I refer to my music as Afrofuturistic R&B because mm-hmm. normally in R&B, the topics are, are usually around, you know, things like love or, or how amazing I am in the adult experience <laughs> like you know mm-hmm. like i'm trying to keep it uh family friendly here but you know like those that's usually the the main topics in in r&b and so i'm really trying to change i'm trying to uh use music as a philosophical platform to mm-hmm. push different types of conversations and different types of experiences that a lot of us have just mm-hmm. as humans let alone yeah, let alone black american humans or black women like there's there's so many things that we have as shared experiences that that we need to talk about more and then i'm hoping that through this music it changes people's thought process mm-hmm. and 
and just, you know, gives you a little bit more of a storyline to refer back to when you think of somebody else going through something. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like a lot of, I mean, like I said, I looked at your um, file soul child today and they had mm-hmm. over 49,000 views. So it sounds to me like a lot of people are resonating with your music. I'm just yeah. wondering what's, what's next for you or what are, what's next on your bucket list of, you know, songs or do you have anything in the yeah. works right now? I do. So I, I'm very much a, have a love of live music. So everything that I did with these, this whole writing project during COVID, I, I put, it was a three track project, three songs that I did during COVID. The first one was really kind of dealing with the depression and that dark cloud, that toxic feeling. And then the second song was really dealing with how can we address that need for unconditional love between each other, just as humans. Mm -hmm. Then my last one is kind of like my personal way. I always go to God and I always go to faith with it, but not in mm-hmm. a judgmental way. Like I, w- I, I really try my best to never judge someone because they are not of the same faith as me and think that, that because they're not of the same faith as me, that they could not attain a higher spiritual existence. So that's what the third song is really about. And I am taking, I just got out of the studio a couple of weeks ago where we took all three tracks and I, pulled together some of my most favorite musicians and I like to call them oral magicians because they really are like so talented on their instruments that when I, when I work with them and I detach myself from the outcome, there something greater evolves and and is created from all of the, the energies of the people there. So I'm going to be releasing the live, a, a live version of that and hope when things open, as things open back up, I'll, start to do some live shows and I'm, I'm very excited about that and just kind of sharing this whole process and journey with whoever cares to jump jump along in the on the ride and see where this goes that's amazing I'll be looking forward to hear, hearing more information about that I just have a couple more questions mm-hmm. for you one of the biggest things during this time or just in general how how can we as society really support artists really sharing listening and sharing their music is is huge any momentum that happens behind behind music for a musician especially that now that things are so focused on this online platforms and through social media anytime that you listen or share to share something whether it's on youtube or spotify or apple music it all helps musicians raise their their voice in the algorithms of this day of artificial intelligence. And I know I might be speaking in tongues right now. Like it might sound like I'm speaking in tongues, but no, like, I'm here for it. It's all good. Everything is like, you know, uh, uh, it's algorithms. And mm-hmm. that's why I, I feel like it's so important, especially for black musicians. Like we really need to amplify voices of black musicians. And, and you can definitely do that by sharing and just listening, adding their songs to your playlists. And, and I, I do, I, I also feel strongly about having a more diverse selection of Black musicians to, to listen to. Um, I, I, mainstream me- media is just really just gives us like a, a two-tone perspective, you know, just like it's, we have a Cardi B. It's like you can either be a Cardi B or you can be a Jill Scott. And there's nothing else 
that is being presented as as a a reflection of different Black American experiences. So mm-hmm. I do very much hope that people, if they're vibing with it, can can support musicians who may not fit a stereotypical description of of, of what we've been presented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think. And at the end, we'll have you give your contact information so people can actually get in touch with you and find you or follow you and uh, listen, stay tuned for your upcoming events as well as downloading your music. So one, one final question here, what drives you to do the work that you do? Honestly, man, if I could just reach one person (laughs) and I don't know how many, I don't know how many times people have heard that, but really like that. Well, there's two reasons, not just one not just a random person, but also my daughters. I have four, I have four daughters. And one thing that I've always wanted, and it's actually the reason why I even decided to pursue music because initially I was a computer programmer. I was, I, and I did that for, for five years until nine 11. And then nine 11 hit. And I was like, wait a minute, what, what about your passion? What, why are we not encouraged to pursue our passions? Mm-hmm. Why is money always the end goal? Mm-hmm. And yes, I want my kids to have, yes, I want to create create general generational wealth for my children, but I also want to teach them that when God gives you something and you feel driven to do it, because of God, and I know I'm getting spiritual now, I'm, okay. I, but that's that's kind of my existence, you know. And you know, when you, when God gives you something like that, and and you have that kind of gift, and when things line up for you, you just gotta you have to follow that path, and that's what I want my kids to do, no matter what they decide to do. Mm-hmm. I, I I I it would be my dream if one of them actually became like an astronaut. And I'd be like, yeah, my my daughter's the first. She's a scientist, and she's on Mars. Like, mm-hmm. but. But what? But I'll never force that on her. So, but I I felt like I had to live by example, mm-hmm. and I see so many young brown girls who don't have a mentor and don't have a person to look up to, uh, or mm-hmm. kind of see themselves in a in a certain situation. So, I want to change that for somebody else because I didn't have that when I was younger, and it was all I ever wanted was to see you know someone at my age doing their thing. Mm-hmm. The, that, that when you said young brown girl, I'm like, Ooh, that would be a great song title. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I definitely. Yeah. I mean, all what you're saying is so true. Definitely a lack of mentorship, but I would say, you know, all great points. And I'm sure your daughters are very proud of you and the work you've done and really being able to, you know, make that decision and say, you know, I'm going to step out on faith and I'm going to do what I'm passionate about. And through that, you are impacting other people's lives. So I think that's amazing. So I want to definitely thank you for sharing that. Thank so, you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so on that note, did you have any other comments or recommendations you would like to leave for the audience? Just, I would say, if you're, if you want to come along on this journey with me and my music is up on all streaming platforms right now on Spotify, YouTube, uh, Apple Music, however you you choose to listen. It's, it's there and available. I'm on both Instagram and um, Facebook. You could follow me at Zahaya Music. 
And it's uh, Z-A-H-Y-I-A music. So I want to thank you again, Zahaya, for taking out time out of your busy schedule to come sit with CC. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Also feel free to leave a voicemail with questions or suggested topics for the future podcast episodes. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at DOC underscore Macintosh, which is M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. And thanks again. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for pulling up a chair and listening to Sitting with Cece. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you access your podcast. Follow me on social media, share the episode, DM me with comments, or leave a voicemail message with topic suggestions and questions for our next podcast. Remember, the views and opinions expressed during the show represent our guest and host alone. Until next time, bye.